What is up, you guys? Welcome to another edition of the Fundamental Health Podcast. I am so glad that you are here with me for this episode with Michael Easter. It is an amazing one. I am also super excited to tell you about what we are doing at Heart and Soil. This is the company that I built with some amazing people. We are located in Austin, Texas. We make desiccated organ supplements because a lot of people want the nutrition in liver and heart and spleen and testicle or other organs, but you don't want to eat those organs. So we freeze dry grass-fed, grass-finished, regeneratively raised organs from cattle raised in New Zealand. We're working on a US-based supply chain, exciting developments coming there. And I am so proud of what we've done. We get testimonials all the time from people showing us how we've really positively affected their lives. Check this one out. This one is from Brian. It's about our newest supplement, whole package, which has testicle, liver, and blood. He says, energy drive and primal pheromones. I knew the benefits of liver. I could only guess the benefits of blood extract, but that testosterone in testicle was definitely noticeable. From my overall energy to waking up in the middle of the night, quote, ready to go, it has been the difference maker. I get married in a week and this will definitely be going with me overseas. Thank you for changing my life. And thank you, Paul and the crew at Heart and Soil for everything you do. So check us out at heartandsoil.co, that is .co. If you need more nose nutrition in your life, if you want more organs, these are so nutritionally replete, they will change the way that you feel and perform. I can tell you this from personal experience and thousands of people have experienced it now. It's the highest quality supplement we could ever produce. And I know that this will be a huge game changer for you as well. So check out whole package and check out this week, we are releasing our supplement for women, which is her package to complement whole package. You can go to heartandsoil.co to reclaim your birthright to radical health. My guest this week, as I mentioned, is Michael Easter. Total freaking badass, man. This guy has been really curious about how humans can integrate modern science uh, and evolutionary wisdom for improved health, meaning, and performance in life and work. He's been around the globe. He's gone to ancient monasteries in Bhutan. He's worked with U.S. Special Forces, high-tech genetic labs in Iceland, Fortune 500 board boardrooms, the world's most remote wilderness areas. He spent 30 days in Alaska with Donnie Vincent, who I also interviewed on this podcast. That show will be out soon. And we talked about his new book, which is called The Comfort Crisis. I really enjoyed this conversation. I think you guys are going to get tons out of it. It's all about the remembering, really, um, really uh, the concept that we have lost touch with many things that are important for us to do as humans that shape our character in positive ways. So check this one out with Michael Easter. I know you will love it. If you like this podcast, please support me. Please help me spread the message to more people by leaving me a review on Apple Podcasts. That's the main place I ask for reviews. That helps us reach a lot of people. And as a thank you to everyone who leaves me a review on Apple Podcasts, I will be giving away, I continue to give away a signed copy of my book every month to one person. So thank you for that, guys and enjoy this podcast with Michael Easter. I also wanna give a shout out to my sponsors. They make this possible. And these are all products and things that I believe in deeply. I wanna start off by telling you guys about Blazing Bull Grill. This is a revolutionary portable gas infrared grill that heats up to 1500 degrees Fahrenheit. And it's like the best steaks I've ever eaten. Once I cooked with this thing in Austin, I didn't wanna make steaks on anything else, which means that I had to ask Blazing Bull for a second one, which I brought back to Costa Rica. I literally brought one to Costa Rica. It's sitting over there. It is the envy of all of my friends. It is the best grill in all of Costa Rica. There's nothing like this anywhere else I've tried. It's way better than the regular grill. It does all kinds of things beyond steak, chicken wings, hamburgers, seafood, 
etc. I know you guys don't want to cook vegetables on it. So I won't even tell you about that. But it's like, it's amazing heating technology used by the world's best steakhouses since the 1980s. And it's just, it's a game changer. It's freaking a game changer. So check it out. And it is made in the USA. So you can feel good about that. Like I said, I believe in things that are made in the USA. We are developing a US-based supply chain for heart and soil as well. BlazingBullGrills.com. Use the promo code CarnivoreMD for 150 bucks off the checkout. When this podcast is done, I am walking right over there on my deck and cooking a steak on the Blazing Bull Grill. And it's going to be amazing. The best steak I've eaten since this morning, but definitely better than steak I've had any other way. Total game changer. BlazingBullGrills.com. CarnivoreMD gets you 150 bucks off. You guys will love this thing. I also want to give a shout out to White Oak Pastures in Georgia. They are my friends and now my family doing regeneratively raised meats in Bluffton, Georgia. They are really the OGs of the regenerative agriculture movement. Will and Jenny Harris are amazing people. They have grass-fed, grass-finished beef. They have Iberico pork. They have grass-fed, grass-finished lamb. Uh, amazing stuff. They have duck, guinea. They also have chickens, which are corn and soy-free. They do organs and suet. I love these guys. You can use the code CarnivoreMD to get 10% off your first order with White Oak Pastures. We all vote with our dollars. We cannot abstain from voting with our dollars. We either are supporting small regenerative farms like White Oak Pastures and Belcampo, the next sponsor, or we are voting for things like Cargill, Nestle, and Unilever, which are multinational corporations which do no good on this earth. You're only on this earth for a short amount of time. Do good with your dough. Uh, vote for what matters, support what's important. So also want to tell you guys about Belcampo. You're all probably familiar with this amazing farm in Northern California. They have incredible grass-fed, grass-finished, regeneratively raised meat as well. My favorite right now is the Uruguayan ribeyes. They're uh, doing regenerative farming in Uruguay, which is also incredible. They have organic ribeyes from Northern California, Uruguayan ribeyes. I love all of it. It's amazing. You can get 20% off using the code CarnivoreMD at belcampo.com. And I want to say this. I really appreciate the way that Belcampo stepped up to the plate after what happened at the Santa Monica store. They did an investigation. They apologized. They put all these things in place to change their supply chain. And they're very transparent. I feel incredibly good about supporting them in the future. And I think that they are uh, doing amazing work and you will be supporting a very good cause. People who are uh, principled, and doing the work in regenerative agriculture space by supporting Belcampo with the code CarnivoreMD at belcampo.com. Last but never least, got to give a shout out to my friends at Blue Blocks, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. I had Andy Mant on my podcast recently. I'm going to release that one. It's all about light, but these guys make clearly the best blue blocking glasses on the market. They're just the highest quality. Andy and the team there go to great lengths to create really good lenses that block the uh, green and blue wavelengths, and they're fantastic stuff. They also do red light devices, eye shades, uh, eye masks at night. They do red light bulbs for your house. It's an amazing company doing good stuff, and I so believe in circadian rhythm modulation. So you probably need blue blocking glasses in your life. Check out blueblocks.com. Use the code CarnivoreMD for 15% off your order. So without further ado, on to the podcast with Michael Easter. Love you all. Stay radical. Michael Easter, thanks for coming on the podcast, brother. Hey, thanks for having me, man. It's be fun. I think this will be really good. I just finished reading your new book, The Comfort Crisis, and um, I have a really good friend in Costa Rica where I'm living now who actually recommended this book to me a few weeks ago. He showed me this 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 tweet or this um, this this post with your book in it, and he said you should check this one out. And I thought, okay, cool, let me check it out. And then I was just 
things came around and I kept seeing it and I was like, oh, I got to get him on the podcast. So it's good to have you. And you've got a lot of fans in Costa Rica and we're going to talk about that in the podcast. So I thought, let's start with one of the, my favorite parts of your book is this Japanese story of Misogi or Misogi. How do you say that? Mm -hmm. Misogi. Misogi. And mm -hmm. the, the sort of this mythical tale of Aizanagi. Is that how you say it? Yeah, I mean, my own pronunciation is a little shaky, but Izanagi is how Izanagi. I understand it. Yeah. So tell us the story of Izanagi. Okay, so there's this guy named Izanagi. Well, first of all, you have to understand that this tale is in a book called the Kojiki, which is this big book of Japanese myths um, throughout time. And they kind of explain why Japan is the way it is, right? So they're passed down forever. And so this myth of Misogi, there's this guy, Izanagi, and his wife dies and she descends into the underworld. Uh, they're both gods in the Shinto faith and he can't live without her. So he decides, I'm going down into the underworld. I'm going into hell, I'm gonna save my wife. Now he gets down there and it is, it's hell, it's perilous. There's like all these, you know, in the story it talks about there's all these demons that like grab at him or trying to keep him down. Um, and then he has to escape. He actually, it's kind of a somewhat sad story because he gets down there and he realizes that his wife is, has now become a demon. Um, but now he's like, okay, I got to get back. I got to get back to the normal world, right? Because um, he's going to die down there. So he has to make this like fantastic escape up through the underworld. He doesn't think he's going to make it. He faces these like real trials, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, all that stuff. Uh, but he makes it out. And when he gets out, he goes under this waterfall and this waterfall is this act of purification. So it's your basic hero's myth, right? And you see these hero's myths throughout time and space. Joseph Campbell identified a lot of them and, and what they all are, they have a basic formula. And that is the hero leaves the comfort of home. They go into this trying middle ground and in that middle ground, they really struggle, they battle, they face demons, dragons, all these different things. And, but they make it out. And by making it out, they become a new person. They reach a stage of enlightenment. They realize something about themselves and their potential, right? Um, so you see this kind of story throughout time and space. And this is the concept of misogy, right? Or misogy, like, yes. What is, how does that come into play? So, okay, so for the book, um, I traveled around the world reporting this thing. And uh, my background is I was an editor at Men's Health for a lot of years. And I kind of rose up through the ranks just because I was good at finding kooky characters who were doing interesting stuff, more or less. And one of these guys that I meet and talk about in the book is named Marcus Elliott. So one thing to know about him is he's a little far out. You know, he went to Burning Man like back in the day when it was this little weird thing in the desert. I mean, that's like the ultimate mark of someone who's a little bit of a seeker, right? Uh, but he's also brilliant. He went to uh, Harvard, got his MD. He decides he doesn't want to be a standard doctor. He wants to get into sports science. He wants to revolutionize the field. This is in the early 2000s. And uh, he pretty much does. So he... he kicks around with a few different teams, helps the Patriots win some championships. And then he opens his own facility and it's long story short, it's really based on like big data biometrics. They're looking at how people move, putting it in algorithms. I mean, it's, it's kind of the future. So he's really smart, really number centric. 
Uh, but back to that idea that he's, you know, a little bit of a seeker. He also understands that what really improves uh, human performance and potential, you can't always measure that stuff, right? It's like, why is it sometimes that there's like this NBA player who, you know, maybe isn't the buffest on the court or doesn't look the fittest, but just has this gear in their brain where they can go, oh, clutch time? Yeah, give me the ball. We got this, right? Like, what is that? So to get to these sort of intangibles, they do this thing called Masogi, and it's based on that ancient myth. So once a year, these guys, it'll be Marcus, handful of other people. Some of them are, you know, pro athletes at the highest level. Some of them are like successful artists, doctors, just random motley mix of people. Uh, they'll go out and they'll do something super hard in nature. And it's usually something a little bit wacky. So one year they get this, uh, 85 pound boulder and they walk it five miles underneath the Santa Barbara channel. They've also done stuff like they don't really know how to stand up paddleboard, but we're going to stand up paddleboard like a ton of miles, right? Now there are only two rules uh, to Masogi. Rule number one is that it has to be really hard. And they define that really hard by saying you have a true 50% chance of making it. So nowadays we tend to take on challenges where we're like, I'm going to do this. And if we think we can't, what do we do? We train for like months until we're like 90% confident we're going to make it right. No, this is like, we're not training. This is, I don't know if we're going to be able to do this. Let's go see if we can do it. And then rule number two is that you can't die. <laughs> and that one's pretty straightforward. Um, and it's, and it's really mimicking that idea of the hero's myth where it's like, we're throwing ourselves into this zone of discomfort where we don't know if we can do this. And while they're out there, it's like, you're going to reach this. You're going to see this edge. You're like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. There's no way we're going to be able to finish this. Like I'm spent, let's get ready to tap out. But by putting one foot in front of the other or continuing to paddle or whatever it is, they eventually, you get beyond that edge. And then you can look back and be like, well, wait a minute here. <laughs> I'm looking back at what I thought was my edge. And like, I've obviously sold myself short here, right? Like I didn't, I had an inaccurate measurement of my potential. And then it's like, well, what else am I selling myself short in, in life? Right? So it makes you answer some hard questions and kind of what they're mimicking here too, is the idea that, you know, as humans evolved, we had to do physically challenging stuff all the time. Like life, life was challenging. Uh, and this was without safety nets. So this could be things like a big hunt we'd have to go on. Right. Um, maybe it would be moving from summering to wintering grounds. You have to go over some pass and there's a storm could be like tigers looking in the bushes. Right. Um, but nowadays we don't face that stuff. And each time we would do one of those things, we would really learn something about ourselves and our potential. Nowadays, our challenges are like presenting in front of a group or I don't know, we were late on our taxes. Right. And what are the consequences? Oh, the IRS is mad your boss gave you a bad look, right? So we never really get pushed out to the edge and we have a, we have a really bad sense of seeing like, what should we be afraid of? And like, what is scary in life? So kind of by, you know, I talk about, it's like reintroducing these metaphorical tigers into your life in a way that mimics these things we used to do in the past, I think can move the dial for a lot of people. And I love that it puts things in perspective because that, is something that I struggle with and that I imagine many people struggle with in their daily lives in quote, westernized civilization. 
every once in a while I'll walk outside of my house and it's a clear night and I see the stars and I almost fall over and I think, oh, why am I so stressed about XYZ? I'm an ant on a rock hurtling through the universe at a million miles an hour in a galaxy. Like, who cares? And it's the same kind of thing that you're saying. Like, our stress used to be a lion is going to eat me. Uh, I'm going to fall out of this tree or fall down this ravine and, and die or I'm going to actually starve. And now our stress is that guy cut me off in traffic or my boss gave me a funny look or like you said, I'm late on my taxes and it's, it's all so trivial and we have this very low level of chronic stress that I think eats away at us. And so I love this idea of misogi and really putting those things back in perspective by doing things that are hard as shit every once in a while. Yes. So you can think this is nothing, this is nothing. And there's, in the book, you mentioned that this is very common in traditional hunter-gatherer cultures. I mean, you talk about the Maasai and the Ne Per Se and these, uh, or, or the Nez Piers. I think it's the Ne Per Se. <laughs> I could be mispronouncing that. And then, you know, um, Aborigines in Australia. You want to talk about some of their sort of coming of age rituals, which are essentially Masogi? Yeah. So you look at a lot of traditional cultures and they all had to write a passage. And the idea is that, you know, when you have a young person in your tribe, whatever it is, they're usually at point A in their life, right? They're kind of coming up, but they're not really ready to contribute in a meaningful way to the tribe. You need to get them to point B where they are a contributor. They're a hunter, they're a gatherer. They're like, okay, we can trust this person. Now to get them to point B, they would mimic that hero's journey. They would send, so for example, the Maasai, they would do a lion hunt. They would send a warrior out with a shield and a spear uh, to kill a lion. And if you kill the lion, you would officially transitioned into a warrior. Um, the Aboriginal would do walkabout. They'd send people out into uh, the desert for, you know, like 30 days. And uh, the Nez Pierce, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong <laughs> too, right? <laughs> they... Uh, they would a lot of times do, and you see this in a lot of uh, Native American cultures where it's like you're sent out into the wild without food or water for an extended period and you really struggle. But as you kind of go through that, you have to learn, you have to pick up a lot of gears, right? That you didn't necessarily know you have. And when you return to your uh, tribe, you have this, you have this thing, right? You've not only picked up skills, but you've also picked up this realization that, hey, like I got this more or less. And in modern society, we've really removed a lot of these physical, emotional, spiritual bundles of a rite of passage, right? Like you look at young people today, it's like, what what's the rite of passage for young people? And I think probably the only thing that really does this at scale, and not everyone does it, is the military. So think about get going into the military, right? You show up, you're this kind of pudgy, weak, whatever, you got a crappy attitude. And then what do they do with you? They throw you through boot camp, right? That trying middle ground. And then what happens when you graduate boot camp? You're a new person, which they signify by giving you your uniform. If it's a special forces selection, you get a green beret, you get a ranger tab. Like there is this really symbolic transition into like, okay, this person's ready. I love it. And you know, what's interesting is that at at this company that I've built, Heart and Soil, um, we make desiccated organ supplements because I really believe that organs mm -hmm. are a huge part of the human diet that's been left out. You know, they're eaten by the Hadza yeah. and the Maasai. And 
I really want to bring this back to, to our company. And so it's something that, I, that we're going to institute this like rite of passage. That's like very hard for people. So I that, love it, man. So that in the tribe, people can believe this. And I have a really good friend who, who really taught me this concept years ago because he has this workout that he calls a barbarian. And of course, because I'm, he's like one of my best friends on the earth and I wanted to be a part of his tribe. I did this thing called a barbarian and the barbarian entails for, for men, it's you carry two 70 pound kettlebells, one in each hand. You have a backpack with 120 pounds on it uh, or 70 pounds in the backpack. You're pulling a sled with 120 pounds in it and you have 15 pound ankle weights on each ankle. And <clears throat> your goal is to walk a mile and up okay. and down hills over uh, pavement. And, you know, these guys who have done it all the time can do it really fast. I think the record is like under an hour and oh, wow. you know, it's, it's a long up and down over a pavement and it's, it's yeah. sometimes the pavement is rough, but the first time I did it, I, I literally did not. It, it's probably one of the furthest reaches of the darkness that I've ever been to. I never, I didn't think I was going to finish or I thought that if I finished, I was permanently going to damage my back because I had this low back pain and I was like, mm -hmm. Oh, I've already herniated a disc. I, I know. And I, I got halfway, you know, I got half a mile. It's out and back. And I didn't think I was going to finish, but I just, I kept taking steps and I kept taking steps and then I finished it and it was like, whoa. And I didn't walk right for a few days, but yeah. it was really cool. And, and he uses that kind of in his uh, tribe as a rite of passage. And so I think this is so cool. And it's something that's been left out uh, of who we are as humans. Like we, these are fundamental to who we are and yet they're forgotten about. Yes, totally. And there's a few, there's a couple things that I love about that. So one of the, one of the sort of guidelines of Misogi is that it should be something kooky because the reason for that is nowadays people will often do things just to comparison shop with other people. So it's like, Oh, my neighbor ran a marathon. What, how, how fast? Oh, three thirty. Well, screw that guy. I'm doing three twenty-five, Right. And that's not really the point of Misogi. So by just coming up with something kooky, that's like, just, we made it up, you know, you, you can't comparison shop as much and yeah. it becomes for you to learn something about you and what this gear you have on board rather than be like, Hey neighbor. Yeah. Five minutes faster, bro. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so you, the cool thing about this book, and I love you way you've written this, is it's all sort of couched in the story of what sounds like your own Misogi, this trip to Alaska, right? But it sounds like I've heard you on other podcasts, and it sounds like you did a few of them prior to that with some extended running that you were doing. But this whole story is this this experience that you had in Alaska with Donnie Vincent, who I'm going to get on the podcast too. Nice. And your your description of him is amazing. I think you said something about like this. Fabio, this backwoods Fabio. I, I wrote it down. And when he comes on the podcast, I'm going to tell him he knows what you wrote about him. But yeah. anyway, you guys can all see it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So like, let's talk about this trip to Alaska a little bit that you did with Donnie Vincent, who if people are not familiar with him, he will be on the podcast soon. He's maybe you, you I'll let you describe Donnie and then take us through your trip a little bit to Alaska to hunt caribou and, and how it relates to a lot of these concepts and how it really brought a lot of this home for you. Yeah, totally. So I, I met Donnie. Um, I did a story about him for men's health, like a, a handful of years ago, maybe like five years ago. Donnie is this backcountry bow hunter and filmmaker. Um, he makes these amazing documentaries uh, about his hunts, but they're way more like planet earth 
that happen to have hunting rather than the stuff you see on the outdoor channel. Um, I mean, they're, they're be like unbelievably beautiful. And he goes into the world's most remote areas for, you know, months at a time. Um, just super fascinating, interesting dude. He's got this like this long gray hair. I mean, he totally has the look, right? Um, so we do this hunt in Nevada. We hit it off. It's like up in these up in these mountains, uh, maybe four, five, six nights, something like that. Um, we hit it off, and you know, he tells me, calls me like a year later, and he's like, "Hey, man, I'm going to the Arctic for 30 days. You interested in coming along?" And I'm like, "Well, that sounds..." pretty challenging, right? It's like Nevada had its, uh, had its challenges with just like being off the grid and we're carrying heavy packs. And this is like Nevada on steroids. And I'm like, yeah, let's do it, man. And I'm thinking, yeah, this is like a Masogi. I don't know if I can do this thing. Um, so we go up there and we're hunting uh, caribou. So just to even get to where we started, it was like five or six flights, right? You take like 747 to Anchorage, uh, and then you get on this smaller plane, successively smaller plane until you're in the, in the, in a plane that's like the size of a Snickers bar and you're like in there with the pilot and you know, you're landing on the tundra. So yeah, we're up there for 30 days and you know, with my background being at men's health, it's like I had made the observation that usually anything that improves human health usually comes with some form of discomfort, right? So if you want to improve your fitness. Well, you're gonna have to work out and working out isn't always fun. It's uncomfortable for a reason, right? Um, losing weight often requires going through some hunger for a lot of people and just things like that, even improving your relationships, your mental health. You know, there's often, um, you see that people have gone through uh, trials, usually have better mental health because they come out the other side with um, learning something about themselves. So, but I get up to the Arctic and it's like, I face all these discomforts that humans used to face every single day, just being a part of life, just having to live. It's freezing cold the entire time. I was coming from, I live in Las Vegas. So I was coming from Vegas, I was like 110 in August. And it was just like, oh my God, so unbelievably cold. Um, we're starving the entire time because we packed in maybe 2000 calories a day but we are you know, walking miles and miles every day with 80 pound packs on our backs, just getting water for drinking and food. We have to hike down to a stream, pull it out of the river and then hike back up to camp. Like everything is challenging. Everything takes effort. Even things like the fact that it is so unbelievably silent up there totally weirded me out for the first little while. You know, and, um, but I get back to my, you know, sort of modern life in Las Vegas and I'm just way better off as a human in like every way, you know, there were things like, you know, I'd lost 10 pounds and I was way fitter than I'd ever been. But, um, more importantly, I think it just felt like the dial on my mental and spiritual health was just like way better. Right. Like I just, I, I was super hard to rattle. I had this really, really deep appreciation for like every, all this amazing stuff we have in life. And I could see that like really the difference between these environments was the fact that, you know, up there, everything was challenging and uncomfortable and it took effort. And then I come back home and it's like so apparent that, oh man, we've engineered discomfort, uh, challenge everything out of our lives. This is great. Don't get me wrong. But like, are there any consequences to the fact that if you don't want to be challenged at all, if you don't want to move, if you don't want to whatever, like you don't have to anymore. And so I start traveling the world uh, from there. I 
went to, you know, I met with people like doctors uh, at the Mayo Clinic, researchers at Harvard, special forces soldiers, um, geneticists in Iceland, all these different places and characters, read a bunch of studies. And I was really just wanting to know, like, what are some of the important forms of discomfort that we've engineered from our lives? And if we find ways to engineer them back into our lives, like what can happen? What can it do for us? And the takeaway is basically that I've identified a handful of things that I think that people should be thinking about. Like, how do I get this back into my life in a, in a conscious way? You know, the, the message of the book is not just, yeah, go, go get uncomfortable haphazardly. Right. It's like, I think there are certain things that tend to move the dial for people more than others. And they tend to be these things that we used to have to do all the time in the past that we've just engineered out of our lives. And it makes total sense, right? There's a reason we always want to be comfortable and do the most comfortable thing because in our past environments where everything was hard, seeking comfort kept you alive, right? It told you don't move too much because that burns calories and calories are at a premium. Uh, when you get food, it tells you I should probably eat as much as possible right now. I should binge this thing. And then we are rewarded for that. Right? So we've stored on our frame as fat for the next famine on and on and on, avoid cold, avoid heat, take shelter, avoid all risk, but we don't have those situations anymore. So this sort of drive, we have to always be comfortable in this comfortable world is backfiring. I, I completely agree with you. And there's a concept, a hashtag that I've started to use called the remembering. And, and I think that it's driving at the same concept that we've forgotten where we've come from as humans. And, and even in 2021, it's sometimes taboo to talk about this, like where we've come from as humans. Like, why is it taboo to say that it's possible that what humans did for the last two to three million years of hominid evolution from Homo habilis to Homo erectus, Homo heidelbergensis to Homo sapiens might actually tell us how we should live today to be fully alive and happy humans. There's actually a group of people who don't believe that our past has any bearing on where we are. And perhaps these people just believe we should become cybernetic organisms and completely just move forward with no attention to the past. But I disagree with them. I think that there's a very important movement toward ancestral ideas and, and you know, ancestral remembering of where we've come from. Yeah. And, and that's why I thought your book was so interesting. These concepts have been lost. And we, we find ourselves at this discordant crossroads in which our evolution is now working against us in terms of food choices, in terms of comfort. We've, we've opened up so many boxes of Pandora. And who knew she had multiple boxes? Yes. <laughs> and, and I think that we're now all trying to say, oh, how do we undo all of this? We've, we've clearly gone too far. And the same friend that actually recommended your book to me in Costa Rica, I had some really great conversations with him about technology. He's, he's really savvy in the technology space. And, you know, I, I think I tend to be kind of black and white in my thinking. That's one of my uh, foibles. And, and I'm like, oh, technology is bad for us as humans. And, and he was like, I don't think technology is bad. I just think humans always overuse it. And so I think that just like comfort, we have to understand that it's possible to overuse comfort. And I love that you say this in the book, we're engineered to seek comfort. That's part of our evolution, but we're also engineered to seek things that are sweet. And that gets us in trouble a lot because industrialized processed foods uh, trigger so many of the same evolutionary yeah. uh, 
drives that we have in terms of comfort. So most listeners of this podcast will know that I'm asking them to rebel and take a step back against industrialized processed food and mm-hmm. focus on the foods that were most readily available throughout evolution or, or that were most sought by humans throughout evolution. And I love what you're saying here that, that we also need to rebel a little bit against our overuse of comfort and our over, overly uh, hermetically sealed lives and our overly straight edge lives. And there's so many aspects we could go into here, but let's talk about the boredom piece a little bit because this is something that's very near and dear to my heart. Um, I find myself unwittingly addicted to social media more than I want to be in today's day and age. And that's just because I use Instagram and I use Twitter and I use YouTube and I use these platforms to share a message but it's almost like you can't deal drugs without getting addicted to drugs. I haven't figured this out, right? And so the times in my life when I've gone without my cell phone, I can't remember many of them, but they've been really challenging and really freeing at the same time. So I love that you said when you got to Alaska, you were just impressed by the silence. Like how many of us can actually go without entertaining ourselves for 30 or 45 minutes? That's incredible. Yeah, That's totally. Shy. Yeah, so I mean, we're up there and we're we're hunting, right? So we're hunting this uh, herd of caribou called the Western Arctic herd. So we're trying to catch them as they go from their uh, summering grounds to their wintering grounds. Now they are always moving. They're just this species of animal that constantly walks and eats and moves. So you're just waiting for them to come through, right? Now this was not happening. This took a while to happen. So like the first week, we're just sitting there looking through a spotting scope going, yeah, nothing there. I mean, my cell phone doesn't work up there. There's not service within a hundred mile radius for me, right? I didn't bring a book. I didn't bring a magazine. It's not like I brought a laptop or anything like that. So all of a sudden I find myself in a interesting scenario that I rarely face anymore. I am bored, right? How often are we bored nowadays? So to deal with this boredom, I would have to come up with stuff, right? I would, I started reading the tags on my outdoor jackets, on my outdoor gear. You're like, oh, can't can't, uh, dry clean this. Okay, that's good to know. 60% down, huh? Sales guy told me it was 90% down. That piece of crap. You know, (laughs) you're reading things like the labels on your energy bars, stuff like this. You're like, oh, I wonder what that ingredient is. Just... Like your mind starts to wander and find these weird outlets, right? But I also did things like I came up with a bunch of ideas for stories for the magazines I write for. I wrote some of the book, came up with a Christmas list. So I kind of told you all that to tell you this, that, you know, as we evolved, we had this boredom. Boredom, we evolved to have boredom as this sort of evolutionary discomfort that tells us, hey, whatever you're doing right now, your time invested and your return on your time has worn thin. So if you picture, you know, in the book, I talk about picture, uh, picture a caveman picking berries from a bush. When you pick the berries that are easiest to reach, it's really engaging. It's like, oh, I'm getting a lot here. But once all the, once you've picked most of the berries and they're harder to find, they're harder to reach in the back, it starts to become kind of boring, right? Because the, your, what you're getting for your time is worn thin. So boredom would kick on and basically be like, hey, go do something else because this isn't helping you survive at the rate it was anymore, right? Go hunt, go do something else. Um, So boredom is this evolutionary discomfort that says, hey, go do something more productive, you know, throws a little bit of discomfort at us. Now in the modern world, anytime we're bored, we have something that is really engaging to do. The average person spends 
11 something hours a day engaging with digital media. So that is cell phone, TV, computer, iPad, radio, on and on, right? We have all these really engaging ways to deal with our boredom. So it's like now when we, when we feel the slightest tinge of boredom, we don't go, hmm, I'll come up with magazine story ideas. Mm, I'll do X, Y, Z that is you know, more productive. We just pull out our cell phones because cell phones and apps in particular or Netflix or whatever it is are engineered to be way more engaging, right? They take no effort. Someone does the thing for you. So this drive that we have, uh, this boredom, it's like one neuroscientist told me like our outlet for it is now junk food for the mind rather than something productive. So in the book, I talk about, you know, there, we know there are benefits to boredom. It gives your brain a bit of a break when you go, when you think internally rather than externally. So anytime we're focusing attention uh, outwardly, like on a phone or a screen or whatever, our brain is actually working pretty hard. Um, number two is that uh, having times of boredom is associated with a lot more creativity. So they've mm -hmm. done studies where they'll have, you know, they'll get one group bored and they'll have another group be on their cell phones and then they'll give them creativity tests. And the groups that are bored come up with more, uh, better answers on these creativity tests. And that's because like, if you just sit around and are forced to just be with your thoughts, they're going to wander in some weird ways that are more creative than if you were just like, Oh, look, another dog video on Instagram. <laughs> right? So in the book, I argue, you know, we, we hear so much about how we need to spend less time on our cell phones, which is totally true. We do. Um, but a lot of times when people are like, okay, hey, I'm going to reduce my screen time by an hour a day, they just go watch Netflix. And they're like, well, what do I do now? I'm going to call my computer. I'll just go on Instagram on the, on the laptop. Like the, your, your brain doesn't know the difference. So I think we need to figure out ways to reinsert boredom back into our life. And like, I personally, after getting back from Alaska, like I'll take a 20 minute walk outside, totally disconnected every single day because it gives me time where I'm not immediately drawn into my cell phone. I just leave my cell phone at home, right? Because look, these things are unbelievably engineered. There are, you know, kids who got a perfect score on their SAT and are now at MIT and Stanford and they're sitting in labs going, how can I get this moron Michael Easter to spend more time on Instagram? And they are very good at it, right? Like these things are just amazingly built to capture our attention and have us just totally forget that, oh, I've spent 30 minutes on this stupid app, you know? It makes me a little frustrated. I can't tell you how often, and I'm embarrassed to admit this, I can't tell you how often I go on Instagram to look up someone's handle. To, to tag them in a post. You know, yesterday I was writing a post about a recent podcast guest, Daniel Vitalis, who's actually doing really cool things up in Northern Maine. He's like a modern day hunter gatherer, kind of like Donnie Vincent. And, and my intention before I opened Instagram was what is Daniel's handle on Instagram? And five to seven minutes later, I'm just like scrolling through and looking, I'm like, what, a, oh, I hate it. <laughs> and even though I have some awareness that Instagram does this to me, I still get sucked in. It's so powerful and so unnerving. So I love the idea of just building in boredom into our lives. And some of the best times in my life have been the times when I've been able to disconnect the most from all of those things. I mean, I love surfing. That's one of the main reasons that I live in Costa Rica and I can mm -hmm. surf every day now. And surfing is and hopefully will always be pretty damn free from any interruptions because you're in the yeah. middle of water. 
and, and you're literally submerged in the middle of water. And so you can't have a cell phone, you can't listen to music, and all you can do is look at the ocean, which is incredibly calming and very cool. It's one of the least, I think, uh, corrupted sports out there in some ways, because you can't listen to music while you're surfing. I'm sure somebody will figure out a way to do it eventually. Yeah. But all you can do is be in the actual milieu, be in the drink. You can only be in the ocean. You have to watch the ocean depending on what's going on at the waves. And similarly, before cell phones were really even invented in, in the year 2000, I hiked the Pacific Crest Trail. So I spent three and a half months on the trail from Mexico to Canada. And even just being outside of television and all those things, it was such an incredible experience for me. It was just a, a separation. And, and all I did all day was walk and look at people who were walking in front of me or just look at the, look at the trees mm -hmm. that I was walking in front of. And it was such a good experience. And in the intervening 20 some years, I fear that my mind has corrupted, been, you know, corroded a little bit by all of the dopaminergic overstimulation, but I love this concept. And I think it's something I'm fighting against more and more. Um, yeah. I don't have a TV in my house, but here we are. I mean, yeah. we're making a product that will benefit people. So this is a double-edged sword, but yeah. So the, yeah, this phone. is the thing is like, of course, cell phones are freaking amazing. You know, like it's unbelievable. Like, oh, I, I want to go somewhere. I can just put it into Google Maps. You and I connected over Instagram. Like right. we're talking about stuff to help people. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot on there that isn't quite as beneficial for people, you know? So I think that it's not like trying to completely reject these things. I just think we need these moments completely removed from it to kind of reset. I mean, your, you know, your experience on the Pacific Crest Trail, it's like when you, you look at research, when people kind of learn and do new things and are removed from this sort of overstimulated environment, their perception of time slows down. So this is why time seems slower when you were a kid, because you're constantly learning and doing these new things. You're having to navigate the world and have new experiences. And now we spend so much time on screens. It's like when you look back at the end of your life, you know, it's like William James says, your life is an is a culmination of that which you were aware of. If you were spending 11 hours a day on screens, well, like half your life was whatever was coming through that screen. Is that going to be something where you look back and be like, man, I'm so glad I spent like two hours on Instagram and watched Netflix for three hours every night. Like, oh, that was great. I saw some really great series, man, The Sopranos, you know, so like, good. no. You're going to be like, oh, whoops, <laughs> you know, oh, time you'll never get back. Have you heard of this often repeated study? I should probably find the reference so I don't keep quoting something that's actually not real, but I believe it is that they put both men and women in this room and took away their their cell phone and any electronics and said, you can either stay here by yourself for 15 minutes or receive an electric shock. Yes. Have you heard about this? I talk about that one in the book. And what's fascinating is that... Uh, men were so much worse. Men were like, I think it was uh, two thirds of men were like, yes. uh, I'll take the shock. Yeah, I'll the take shock. the shock. And a third of women. So it's like, we're also not good at just being with ourselves in solitude. Right? it's like they do polls and there's that study. There's other polls where um, a guy who's out of Australia, he was a professor. He had his students um, just sit alone in silence without anything. And all the, the students were like, oh my God, that was so uncomfortable. You know, it's like we know because of the research coming out that it's being alone and being lonely is not necessarily healthy, right? Having social connections is important, but 
there's a huge difference between solitude and loneliness. Solitude is like taking time to be with yourself and using it to introspect, to learn about yourself, to come to like some meaningful conclusions about your life. And you see it's, you know, it's used by a lot of the greatest thinkers of all time. I mean, like Jesus went out in the desert for 40 days. The Buddha left the palace gates and sort of wandered alone. Even like Steve Jobs would have these unconnected times where he was alone. Lincoln did. Um, but now we're constantly with other people, either in person or through our phones or through TV, right? It's like, even if you're like, hey, I'm going to take some alone time. It's like, well, if you're on Instagram or texting with someone, you're not really alone. So in the book, I advocate that we, that these sort of totally detached periods too give us some time um, to be in solitude where we can learn something about ourselves. So one of the researchers I talked to who studied this talks about how people need the, to build the capacity to be alone. Because if all of a sudden your social structures fall apart, if you can lean on yourself and have that gear, you're going to be a lot better off than someone who only thrives as sort of like this social connector circuit, which I think that is one of the reasons why we have a problem with loneliness, right? There's like this epidemic of loneliness. It's like people are so used to just like being constantly stimulated that when they do get alone, it's like, I can't stand myself. I don't know anything about myself, right? Like we need these times. And I, I started thinking about this too, because in Alaska, like we get dropped off, right? On the tundra and there's a lot of fairing between planes. And at one point, the plane um, takes one of the guys I'm with, takes him away. And I'm like standing on the tundra, totally alone. There's grizzly poop all over. And there's not another person within miles and miles and miles. My cell phone doesn't work. And that like complete state of aloneness, I'm like, holy crap. Like all of a sudden, like how you should behave, like all these social narratives that we have, like, why do we do the things we do? It's because we're surrounded by people who kind of tell us to, right? It's like, why'd you go to high school? Cause you're forced to, why'd you go to college? Well, that's just what you do. Why'd you get a job right after college? Well, that's just what you do. Why'd you buy a house at 26? Well, that's what you do, right? It's just like this story and we all kind of just fall into it. So I think also by having these periods of solitude, you can ask yourself some deeper questions like, oh, why do I do the things I do, you know? I wonder if those three and a half months on the Pacific Crest Trail, they probably changed my life forever. You know, I didn't, I didn't take a, a traditional path and that probably played a huge role in that for me. Totally. I, I, I cannot believe that it did not. The other thing, I love that. And when I interviewed Tim Grover, um, who recently wrote a book called Winning, he was performance coach for like Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant. He talked about this too. He said, you know, winners spend time alone. And there's a really great quote from Nikola Tesla, Nikola Tesla, which is basically to paraphrase like all or like genius creativity comes when you're alone. You have to spend time alone. Mm -hmm. So I, I completely agree. And yet it's That's something super we, cool. we avoid. Yeah, I mean, Tesla knew it. Also interesting with the fact that like, modern offices are really pushing this. Like we all have to be together. Like they're breaking down normal offices. Right. Mm. And there's all these communal offices now. It'll be interesting to see, like, is that actually going to move the dial? Cause you know, even just, I think of like really creative people, uh, in the modern world that I know, I mean, they came up with their best ideas alone for sure. So for example, like at men's health, I had to, uh, I wrote a long profile, Dave Castro, the guy who does all the programming for the games and like his workouts are just super interesting and they're based on like greek myths and like literature and like you're like well, where the hell does this guy come up with ideas and 
I was like, so, you know, what do you do? Like, how do you come up with this stuff? He's like, I just go in my shed and, you know, I need alone time. I don't want to hear from anyone. I don't want to talk to anyone. I'm just going to come up with it. And if you don't like it, tough. You know, I'm like, all right. It's amazing. It's amazing. We all need, that's the man cave, you know, that we all need a shed. We all need yeah. a Dave Castro shed in our backyard where totally. no one can interrupt you. Um, you also talk in the book about landscapes of despair. And I thought this was really fascinating. Tell us about that and like the contrast you've noticed in Vegas versus Alaska, et cetera. Yeah, totally. So uh, yeah, these researchers came up with this uh, term landscapes of despair to describe our modern cities. Basically, we know from the research that modern cities are not great for mental health. If you look at uh, rates of things like anxiety and depression, basically the more dense your city is in terms of population density, the less happy you're likely to be. So for example, they did a ranking of 319 cities in the United States. Which one scored dead last? Which one is densest? New York City, yep. <laughs> and there's a lot of reasons for this. Um, one is that we evolved in smaller groups of people and we could sort of remember everyone. We had this sort of tighter knit group. Well, cities, all of a sudden you're with all these people. It's just a lot to process for our brains. There's this number called Dunbar's number that says like, 150 people or less, and that's a rough approximation, are probably the groups we evolved in. Once we start to deal with more than that number of people, it kind of like, we have to come up with, it adds a lot of complexity into our lives, more or less, and that tends to stress us out. Um, number two is that cities are overdeveloped with concrete and right angles and a lack of trees and bushes and grass and horizons. So, you know, you look at the research on time in nature and it is overwhelming that humans thrive through exposure to nature and there's you know different doses seem to have different effects but we know that like being out of nature improves your mental and physical health people's blood pressure goes down things like that right um and cities take that away one of the reasons uh that nature can be so calming is that nature is made up of fractals so these are repeating patterns that you know exist throughout the universe so you think of like a tree um it goes from you know big branch to smaller branch to smaller branches to smaller branches to leaves and even leaves are made up of like kind of this one little branch that goes out so it's like these patterns that go from big to small and you see it through i mean river systems um mountain ranges stuff like that and in cities, we're just hit with right angles. It's all right angles. There's no fractals. So we're not, uh, we don't experience those. And one random, interesting, fun trivia fact is that the reason scientists think that Jackson Pollock's paintings um, seem to really resonate with people is because they're made up of fractals. They're kind of like the big splash to little splash to little splash. So yeah, you poll people too and ask, what sort of environment would you like to live in? I'll say, you know, like dense city, mid-sized city, um, small town, rural town, out in the middle of nowhere. People overwhelmingly choose small town or rural environment. And yet 80 some odd percent of Americans live in big metropolitan cities. And the number is only increasing. It really started um, building up after the industrial revolution when it was like, well, you, we need to make some stuff in factories. You gotta live next to the factory. Sorry, everyone move here. You know, um, but I think the pandemic too has also kind of taught us, has allowed people to maybe some people to move out of cities. I mean, you moved to Costa Rica, man. <laughs> I mean, you know, and it's probably 
paying off. So I think we've learned something about that, but I, I do think there's a realization that most people, most of the time would be better off if they had more time in nature and had a lifestyle that was a little slower paced than you will find in downtown Manhattan or places like that. So for me, when it was going from Vegas, I mean, a lot of people just, I mean, I even think about my experience in the airport in Vegas. It's like, you're waiting in this TSA line everyone's, you know, just kind of pissed off and whatever you go through the airport and the airport in Las Vegas is like half of a, half a casino too. You know, it's like there's slot machines. There's all these dinging stuff. You have to wait. And it's just like, Oh, this is miserable. Right. You get up to Alaska, all of a sudden the volume goes down, the pace goes down, everything drops down and it's like, Ooh, I can breathe. Right. So, yeah, it's, it's so interesting for me having recently moved to Costa Rica and people who follow the podcast will, will know why I've done that. I'm having a gathering there in July, which I'm super excited about. I just invited everybody to come and hang out with me in Costa <laughs> nice. Rica. I'm so super excited about having an animal based gathering in Costa Rica. But when I come back to Austin, I'm in Austin right now because my computer died in Costa Rica. And this is one of the benefits of technology and comfort, right? We're not completely saying these are horrible. They didn't have I an Apple store back. in the jungle? Yeah, there's no Apple store in the jungle. <laughs> yeah. I could go to San Jose for an authorized dealer, but might as well just come back to Austin and yeah. see the team here at Hard and Soil and get, cool. get a new computer so I can do this work from there. But every time I come back, and I've been back twice really now since I've been living in Costa Rica, I'm struck by these right angles. And, and the writing in your book really drove this home for me. And I thought, ah, oh, I get it now. I get it. Even the roads in Austin. And the first time I came back to Austin, I noticed this and it's even stronger. Um, it's creating a stronger impression in my mind right now. The roads are so straight and people are going to mm -hmm. laugh and the pavement is so straight and the curbs are so straight. There's all these right angles and there's right angles with grass and lawns are in right angles and houses are in right angles and everything is right angles. And, and I just don't see enough trees and, and grass is manicured and there's one level for the grass and, and everything is overly manicured. And the first time I came back, I thought, this is strange. It looks very weird to me. And now I get it. I, I think that it just has to do with a fractal deficiency in what I'm seeing. And my body knows this is not wilderness. What are you doing in this zoo? What are you doing? And of course, Costa Rica is a town. There's a town in Costa Rica where I live, Santa Teresa. And it's not, it's not complete wilderness either, but it's pretty darn close. I mean, yeah. it, there's very few right angles. Most of the roads are dirt. Um, you know, buildings are right angles, but there's trees everywhere. There's jungle. There's nowhere near the amount of right angles that we have here. We could do a, we could have a right angle quotient yeah. for places of the world. And it's all fractals and curved lines and trees and, and there's mud and, and muddy roads are bumpy. And there's, it's like a path and it doesn't look the same at this peripheral vision and things are not manicured in the same way. And, and it, it just feels differently to me. And of course it feels differently because of the sounds and because of the, the green and because of the nature and because of the humidity or because of the quality of the air or who knows what, but this visual change is interesting. And then also I'm living in a much smaller community, which is closer to Dunbar's mm -hmm. number now. Uh, I, I definitely sense it's race is bigger than 150 people, but it, it's pretty darn small compared to a town like Austin or New York city. And people definitely move more slowly and the, the adage, the admonition that I was given when I when I moved to Costa Rica was be patient. Yeah. And nothing happens fast here. And I thought, yeah. okay, but it's great. It's it's a very interesting sort of middle ground for me. Um, 
and I see so many of the concepts you're talking about in this book kind of born out there. You mentioned TSA also in the book, and I thought this was kind of a fascinating thing that kind of the, the research regarding TSA and what, what happens when they don't find things that they're looking for in our luggage. You want to bring that into the conversation a little bit? Yeah, so there's these two, uh, this, this almost sounds like the setup to like a, a dumb joke, but it uh, actually led to an interesting finding. There's these two uh, Harvard psychologists and they're at an airport. They're standing in line for TSA waiting to get checked. And, you know, they notice, man, they find a lot of stuff. And what do they usually find? It's like, oh, someone left, you know, some old lady left her hairspray bottle in her purse. Um, they rip apart a carry-on because they think that, like, your banana is a Beretta gun, right? <laughs> um, and obviously, you know, you want them to be better safe than sorry, but these two guys wonder, they go, you know, I wonder what would happen if all of a sudden the, scan the, the luggage scanners never went off. Like, there was never, you know, they could perfectly see things on x-ray. They're like, no, it looks good. No one's buzzed when they went through the metal detectors. What would they do? Would they just let everyone sail through? And they didn't think so. Because here's the thing, is TSA's job is to search for problems. Their job is to find problems, right? So they're like, okay, well, well let's study this. Let's see if there's some phenomenon going on here. They wanna find out, you know, do people just unconsciously search for problems, whether they are aware of it or not. So. They do two different studies. In the first study, they had a group of people look at 800 different faces, and the people were tasked with deciding whether a face was intimidating or not intimidating. Now, unbeknownst to the participants, once they hit about the 200th face, they started showing fewer and fewer of these intimidating or threatening faces. The participants didn't know this was happening. In the second study, they had them read a bunch of uh, research proposals and they were to deem, you know, whether the proposal was ethical or unethical. And again, about midway through, they start feeding them with fewer and fewer, fewer unethical proposals. So this should be black or white, right? It's like a face is either going to threaten you or intimidate you or it is not, or you're reading some proposal and there's either something in it that makes it unethical or ethical. Well, they found out that people don't actually see in this black and white nature. They see gray. What happened is as they hit the 200th face, they just kept naming off the same ratio of threatening to non-threatening faces. Same with the ethical to unethical propo uh, proposals. So what they found is they call this uh, prevalence-induced concept change, which is uh, kind of a dorky way to get to the idea that this is problem creep, essentially. And it basically states that the human brain makes these relative comparisons and is constantly finding problems. So we don't actually think, oh, hey, you know, this isn't that problematic. Like things are getting better. I can see this. We just compare it to compare our ideas to what came before it. And we're really good at always finding problems. So in my book, I talk about, you know, as the world has gotten better and better, this means that we don't look back and go, man, hundred years ago, I would have been working in a factory, you know, and there would have been no laws. I would have been working 12 hour days. We go, man, my boss kept me for eight hours and 10 minutes instead of eight hours today. This is unacceptable, right? So we're constantly just finding the next problem in our lives. And as things get better and better, as they generally have over time for most people, you know, people are living longer. We have access to food. 
We don't have to go out and till soil all day if you live in the U.S., probably. Um, we don't stop and appreciate that. We instead kind of find the, the next problem. And because our problems are so hollow now, it's essentially the science of first world problems. And so maybe, do you think that that means we need some real problems? Like this is kind of going back to your idea of discomfort. Like you, you need to know what real problems are to keep this in perspective. Yes, I think we need moments that push back at us. So I'll tell you a story. It's like one night um, in Alaska. I'll preface it by this, um, saying that there's this restaurant that I would go to in Las Vegas before I got up to Alaska. We still go all the time and food is absolutely killer. Can't be beat, but the service is just garbage. It's almost like kind of soup Nazi, except like the Mexican food edition. Um, so I'd always like, you know, you're eating there begrudgingly, you're pissed off because your water glass isn't full. And like, you're like, oh man, like there's so many inefficiencies in this system. So I go up to Alaska and one night we have, we have to hike back to camp. It's like 10 miles away, we're carrying these heavy packs. It's negative 20 out, the wind is blowing. We're having to walk across this like half frozen swamp, starving, get back to the teepee and it's freezing in there. And I've got like a cliff bar for dinner. Right. <laughs> this absolutely sucks. Well, now it's like I get back from Alaska. When I go into that restaurant and I have to wait and my water glass isn't full and all these things, I'm not going to complain about it because I think, oh man, I'm warm. <laughs> I don't have to hike a mile for this water. I'm about to eat like a thousand calories in amazing food right now. Like I can look and see all these amazing things that are right with this moment. And I'm like, eh, I don't care if the, it's going to take a minute to get water. Like it puts it back into perspective. So I think sometimes it's like, you know, this idea of comfort creep, if the goalpost keeps moving one direction, we need moments that, Hey, push it back a few yards in the opposite direction and help reframe our perspective. Yeah. I think that's, that's so important. And I'll tell you when I spent time with the Hadza this year, they were pretty stoked when they ate and like the only thing, yeah. you know, they didn't, they weren't worried if like a piece of meat fell on the dirt, they were just going to brush the dirt off and eat it. There's obviously nobody walking around refilling their water glasses, but they, they, they were some of the happiest people I've ever met, if not the happiest. And they live outside a hundred percent of the time. And they live in thatched huts when they even sleep indoors and they're out there in the elements and their infant mortality is quite high because they don't have access to sanitation. And yet when they live past uh, into adulthood, they live very long and uh, free from chronic disease lives and they live a simple life and they are extremely happy. And I think that this, this concept of comfort creep is important to, to talk about because I, I think it results in a lot of unhappiness for us as humans. And, and you mentioned that they're, they're, the diseases of despair in the book are rising rapidly in, mm -hmm. in our westernized society. I mean, what did you say? 2016, 2017, 2018, the, the average life expectancy actually went down because these diseases of despair were killing us. This is yeah. depression, anxiety. Like, where is this coming from? And I think that you're subtly, not so subtly suggesting the hypothesis that perhaps we're despairing because we're not experiencing enough discomfort to keep us um, in terms, uh, to keep us uh, able to allow us to be able to, to keep these things in perspective. Yeah, totally a perspective thing. And it's like, there's some really interesting, uh, research around this idea called toughening. And, um, it basically shows that people who have the highest rates of mental health problems, um, in terms of like, have they faced challenges, 
people who've had a ton of tragedies and challenges thrown at them in life, they don't have great mental health. I mean, this is just like constant stuff going wrong, right? But you look at the other end of the spectrum and the people who have had no real challenges, not too much ever go wrong for them, they have equally bad mental health. There's a sweet spot, it's a U-shaped curve. So like, and it shows that you need some challenges thrown your way to sort of reframe your perspective. And that gives you a better sense of like, what is important to you and what is actually gonna throw you off the rails. I mean, I think that, yeah, there's this sense that people kind of feel like something is off, right? But we can't quite put our finger on it. And there's this sense of despair. And I think that people, we have a lot of easy ways to to try and fix it, but they're quick and they're easy, but they come with repercussions. Things like drugs, alcohol, right? Drug deaths are, you know, I think they're slowing down now, but for a while, like the opioid epidemic, it was like, people were searching, shit, I wanna feel something. And that was an easy thing to do, you know? Um, and so I think that we just kind of need something that pushes back at us. We gotta get out of our comfort zone and not always take the easiest way out of it. And, you know, don't be complacent, more or less. Another topic that you mentioned in the book that I really appreciated was this focus on death. Can we talk about death a little bit? Yeah. Perhaps more than anything, I, I always wonder if this is subconsciously motivating so many things that we do in our lives. This fear of death. I, I feel like this is a concept that many existential philosophers have talked about infinitely in their in their writings, Nietzsche, Nietzsche, and, and many others. But I, I I want to make sure that everyone understands that there's a lot of fear of death, I think, motivating many things we do. And there's an obsession with longevity today. Mm -hmm. And and I can't help but wonder if this is an unhealthy obsession with longevity. Sure, we want to live well, but do we really need to live 300 years or 200 years? I mean, 100 years sounds like long enough to me. Yeah. But, but we're all a little bit afraid of dying. And um, you came across some people in your research and your travels that were quite clarifying in this regard. And I really appreciated that. Yeah. So, yeah, it is interesting what you say about longevity, though, because to me, it's, you know, the, the people that I've experienced in my career that are most um, obsessed with longevity, it's like they spend so much time stressed out about all these things they're doing to live longer. It's like, well, that seems like a, if you're going to be doing that, that seems like a miserable 300 years, my man, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. So we're up there in Alaska and we're hunting and I'd never hunted. Um, you know, I, I eat meat, um, but I'd never, um, you know, killed my own food and up there I did that. And it made me start thinking about the life cycle and how in the United States, you know, we've removed death, from our lives. This goes from our funeral system, where after someone dies, we make them look as youthful as possible. We view them for an hour, whatever it is. We say some nice things, put them in the ground, and then we're told, you know, take your mind off it. Go do something, take your mind off it. Um, to our food system, where, you know, our meat, to your point about organ meats, it's like we don't eat those because they're not, you know, they don't look pretty. So, and it reminds us that they came from a living thing. And so I wanted to learn more about cultural differences of how different places view death. And I learned that uh, in Bhutan, they view death a lot differently. So I traveled there. And Bhutan is interesting because it is, it is one of the least developed nations on earth. You look at the UN development rankings, and it's like 130. Like, it's way up there. 
but they consistently rank among one of the world's happiest nations. They'll be in the top 20 when they do these extensive happiness uh, rankings. And part of the reason, there's a variety of reasons, but one of them is that, you know, death is really woven into their culture and they're very aware of the fact that one day they are gonna die. So in Bhutan, the citizens are told, you know, think about your death every day. Their artwork and a lot of their cultural stuff centers around death. They have these things uh, all throughout the countries that are called sasas. And they are these, they mix uh, the ashes of, the, of dead people with clay and they, these little pyramids. And when I say they're everywhere in the country, I mean like every windowsill will have like five or six of these things. So there's this constant reminder like, hey, you're going to die one day, right? They bring it into their mind. Whereas in the United States, it's like, we don't think about death because it is probably the most uncomfortable thought, right? It's the most uncomfortable part of life, knowing that, hey, one day this ride is going to end. So we ignore it. Whereas there, they bring it into their life. And to sort of learn more about this, I met with a range of people. I met with a guy who's a Oxford economist. He's from uh, Bhutan, and he runs this, um, essentially the... He's a secretary of happiness for the country. Like we have a secretary of defense, they have a secretary of happiness. Amazing. Um, and I also met with a couple of Buddhist leaders and one of them, you know, we had to, I had to like drive up to his shack, which is on this cliff. And, you know, he talked a lot about how he, well, first off, he's an interesting character because, you know, he's from Bhutan, he grew up there, but he lived in the United States for a little bit. So he has like a pretty good handle on how the culture is different and like what our desires are. And he talked about how in the United States, we sort of chase happiness through events and occurrences and titles and possessions. You know, he says, you know, you guys think you have this checklist of stuff and you think that once you check the next box, that's when you're going to be happy. So it's like, oh, once I graduate college, I'll be happy. Once I get a job, I'll be happy. Once I get married, I'll be happy. I'll buy a nice car, I'll be happy. But this stuff doesn't really, actually work because we're never like we're, ne we're never with ourselves and he talks about how in Bhutan it's like they don't they don't have the checklist they really take the idea that they are going to uh, that they're impermanent into their life and it shapes their behavior so instead of focusing on say oh once I get a Rolex then I'll be happy right they are they're just happy. They're more in the present moment. It forces them into presence. It um, sort of cuts away a lot of the excess in our lives and helps us better focus on what is going to actually make you happy. You know, it's like when you realize that one day you're going to die, like, are you really going to get worked up about these random things that we get worked up in about when I can see that like, you know, oh, my coworker, I'm going to die. My coworker's going to die. And if they send me an email that normally would kind of annoy me and just be like, eh, whatever. And I can also make better decisions, right? Cause I'm not going to get so, um, maybe I'm not going to focus so much on working just so I can buy, buy a nicer car. It's like, well, what's the point? Like, I'm not going to have that, you know, they're not going to bury me in the car, <laughs> you know? Um, so it's, it, it seems to work for them. And I've just practiced that in my own life. And I, it, I do think it has, an ability to really center your focus and lead you into better decisions. How are you incorporating that remembrance of death into your own life? Every night when I go to bed. Um, and it, it's uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, some nights it's like, okay, I'm thinking of it. But then some nights you get it and you're just like, oh my God, like it is just, 
like you can, it's like peeling layers, right? And sometimes you get to that layer and it is just terrifying. You're like, wait, so this thing just stops. And what does that even mean? Like, think about that. It just stops. But we still tend to like reference it as like, oh, the world goes on. It's like, no, stops. And I think sometimes people behave as if they're going to live forever. And we also think that like, we're the center of the universe, you know, whereas in the grand scheme of time and space, it's like, do you even know what your great, great grandpa's name is? What about your great, great, great grandpa? Like, no one's going to remember you unless you do something like truly amazing. You're like Joan of Arc or something. Um, but the reality is, is like, we need to live more in the present, I think. And doing that kind of helps you focus on like, oh, I should just do what's going to be good in the now and not get caught up in all these narratives. Do you have a meditation practice? This is something that I have repeatedly wanted to do more of in my life. And I continue to struggle with it. <laughs> it is challenging. Um, I do. I usually uh, meditate like 20 minutes a day mm -hmm. um, with the book uh, coming out and sort of getting busy. I haven't been perfect. I'm still rather like maybe five days a week, but yeah, for maybe the past seven years, I've meditated every day. And I do think, I do think it's helpful. I don't think it's for everyone. Um, I think really what they're trying to get at, and probably there's, you know, someone who's an expert on meditation. I am not listening here, but I think what you're trying to get at is this idea of detaching from your self idea of being able to sort of see your thoughts and realize that I'm not the absolute center of the universe. You know, it's like this idea of self that I've built up is just a random story I've told myself and um, who even knows what the self is. It's pretty deep. Um, but when you have these like sort of fleeting moments where you can sort of see that, it's like, oh, whoa, <laughs> you know. And I, I too want to incorporate more of these death reminders into my life. I thought about getting a tattoo somehow that reminds me of death. I wish we had these sasas in the United States. I mean, that would be so cool to have ashes of our ancestors around. What better uh, reminder of that? And the podcast I recently did with Daniel Vitalis, he talked about having the skulls mm -hmm. of these animals that he's hunted. He has a bunch of bear skulls and wolf, maybe a wolf skull or a fox skull on his mantle yeah. and, and behind him. And I think these are really cool. But as you point out, I think these are sanitized in our consciousness. Like we're not, we're not shown skulls in the grocery store imagine if you went to the grocery store and next to the cow you know uh, there was a cow head uh, next to the yeah. beef there was a cow head and next to the lamb there was a lamb head and we don't want to know that but we want to eat the animal i don't know why we have such a disconnect there yeah and, you know I, I think that one of the reasons we don't eat organs is because they are a little bit too connected with vitality and when you see the liver of an animal you quickly realize oh i have one of those and it's right here in my right upper quadrant yes and, uh, and, and I've eaten brains, so I eat lamb brain. And when you eat lamb brain, you think, oh shit, there's a brain in my skull. And mm -hmm. it, the, the more t it's much more difficult, I've found eating organs to ignore your own mortality um, and to, to ignore an animal's mortality. And, it, it, and it, uh, I think it fosters an appreciation of an animal's mortality as well when you're eating these organs, at least when you're eating them in, in whole form and you can see them. It's, it's a great reminder of these things because you can see a, a piece of steak and it's just like, doesn't really look like something that would come from an animal because it's a different cut, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe even a leg of lamb, if you could visualize like a leg, they're going to take the hoof off. You're not actually going to see it as a leg of lamb, right? 
but the organs you can see it and and especially the organs that you know like a brain or a heart if you see an animal heart that's really going to bother people because we're just fearful and and we're avoiding that appreciation of death yeah now at the at the end of your hunt you actually did successfully hunt some caribou right mm -hmm. tell me about that wasn't that one of the first times that you had hunted and taken an animal yeah, it was. And, uh, you know, like I said, I was sort of reticent about hunting because, you know, I eat meat and I could see the sort of disconnect between not actually killing your meat, but I still didn't want to do it. And, you know, going up there with Donnie was great. He said, you know, I think that he's like, no pressure, but I think you'll better understand why we're up here and why we do what we do if you actually hunt. So I'd say, okay, I'm going to do it, you know. And, but I still wasn't actually sure if I would, you know, it's kind of one of those where like, I don't have to pull that trigger. And we had been searching for caribou for a while, maybe a couple of weeks or something. And finally we got in a position where there was this herd on a hill um, on the other side. We were on one hill, there's a valley there on this other hill. And Donnie's like, yeah, I think that they're maybe going to start walking uh, in, you know, north or whatever it is. And if we can get over this saddle, there was a saddle on the side, um, they might come over that saddle and we're gonna be in good position. So I was like, okay. They start walking and we start trucking it over this saddle. And once we get over it, then we can really sort of, you know, move in. And the whole time I'm like, I'm carrying the gun. I'm like, oh, shoot, I might have to use this thing, you know? We hit the ground and we start to army crawl in you know, we go 200 yards, we sort of pop up, we can't see anything, another 100 yards, we sort of pop up, and I'm looking through the scope of the rifle, and Donnie's got um, binoculars, and all of a sudden, these antlers appear at the summit of the of this um, saddle, and there's one pair, then there's another set, and another, and another, and there's like 30 in this herd, and we're sort of watching them, going like, okay, here they come, and we had identified these two older um, caribou in the herd, because um, we wanted to hunt something older because that's better for the health of the herd as a whole. Um, and it also is like, you know, a lot of times those animals are on their way out. They'll have one or two more years left. And we're looking at the herd and there's this one where his antlers are kind of hitching as he walks. And it turns out he has a limp. You know, he's just like this super old bull. And Donnie's like, okay, that's it. That's the one. That's the one. You know, I'm like, okay. And they keep walking and, but this old bull that, you know, we'd identified kept going in and out of the herd. So I would kind of get him in the scope and then like, you know, a calf or whatever would go before him. I'm like, shoot, you know, um, they get to within 150 yards. This is like the closest point they're going to be. And still like, I can't get him. And, and then they get to about 175 and Donnie just goes, look, man, if you don't want to pull the trigger, you don't have to pull the trigger, but you're going to pull the trigger, you got to do it now. And I'm like, okay. So I'm looking down and sort of right after he said that the herd sort of parts and there's that old bull just standing there. And I pull the trigger, pull it once, pull it twice. And the bull goes down. And in that moment, I was like, what have you done? Like you can see the animal go down. I'm like, there is no coming back from this like a tattoo right it's like once it's done it is done and I got pretty like sad in that moment you know we walk over to uh, the animal it's down on the ground the only way uh, that you could tell that it was living was that it had this like slight trickle of blood coming through its neck so I had uh, my bullet one had landed 
on its neck and one had landed, hit it uh, basically right in the heart, we found. Um, Donnie goes, you know, I'll be back. He just leaves me with it. He's like, I'm going to go get our stuff because we dumped our backpacks and everything because we were, you know, army crawling. And I was super sad. I was like, man, what have you done? And I'm looking at like the, the herd he was with. They're like on this hill. And I'm like, oh man, he's like taking them away from the herd, you know? And I was pretty choked up. And then Donnie comes back and it's like, okay, now we're going to start breaking him down and so we can carry him back to camp. And once we started doing that, my perspective shifted because all of a sudden it went from this animal that I kind of had in my mind is like this Disney-esque, like living this lifestyle, everything is nice and happy out on the tundra to I started to see it more as meat, right? It's like we open them up and Donnie remembers me being like, oh, it's meat, you know? And um, my perspective changed because I had this moment, I'm like, man, you eat meat all the time, like every single day. And never once do you feel any ounce of emotion when you eat meat. Yet here you are with this meat and you have all this emotion, you know? And it sort of made me um, think about that. So having come back from the Arctic, I'm definitely more cognizant of the meat I eat. And I'm more, I'm, you know, I still eat meat. I think it's great for human health, but I think too that um, I'm just more respectful of where it came from and like what the buy-in for us to be able to eat meat is. And that's been, I think that's been really good for me. It's like that appreciation. It's just like another one of those whacks in the face where you go, man, we have it pretty good now, you know? Um, so it was definitely a powerful moment and it, um, it definitely made me, I'm glad I went through with it. I just feel like there's this anonymity to the animals we eat too mm -hmm. often these days. And it's, again, it's, it's from a place of, I think, destructive comfort for humans. Mm -hmm. We're not being asked to face their death. We're not being asked to face the responsibility that comes with eating some of the most nutrient rich foods on the planet, which is, Hey, you killed this animal. That's okay. You're part of an ecosystem. You're a hunter. Now you better live a good life. Yeah. You know, be a part of an ecosystem and be a good human. And I think that that's the reminder that comes with that. Or at least it was for me when I've hunted in the past. I've bow hunted and rifle hunted. And, and every time I walk up on an animal that I've killed, I think I kind of hear the same thing in my mind. And it's be a good human, you know, honor yeah. this animal. And, and meeting the animal reminds me of that a million times more than just seeing it in the fridge maybe I should keep a picture of animals on my fridge so that every time I open the fridge, I know I hear the message, like be a good human. Yeah. I don't think it's unethical to eat animals. I just think that it's a tragedy that we're not reminded of how important and how, um, how really how blessed that is and, and how, how fortunate we are to do that. And in the imperatives, the responsibilities that come with that, like you are one of the most nutrient nourished humans on the planet use that to do something good yes don't use it to do bad things and, and stop you know like these are the narratives i'm kind of telling myself like don't be selfish you know don't hog people in traffic just be patient and just live a good life because you're part of this ecosystem you're part of something bigger and and i think that we've lost that feeling when we're not hunting animals and that's sort of the humans participating in these small groups these dunbar number groups when we know that we're part of an ecosystem we act differently and and I think it's a tragedy that, that many of us don't get that reminder. Um, yet another where, manner in which I think this comfort is, is hurting us. 
Yeah, really well said, man. I mean, you you really nailed it right there. And, you know, you know, I agree wholeheartedly. It's um, it's interesting because when they look at um, polls of, you know, who is for and against meat eating, the people who tend to be most um, against it, even though most people do eat meat. So there's a disconnect there. They tend to be most removed from the life cycle, tend to live in cities where there's just complete removal. The people who are most um, in favor of it tend to be people who live in more rural areas where you um, have interactions with the animals, right? Because it sort of builds this um, a bit more respect from it rather than this detached, like, this is terrible always, you know? I, I agree with you that I think that it is ethically okay to eat animals. We We evolved in a context of hunting and gathering, but I think the scale and the anonymity um, at which we do it now raises some questions that, you know, I think people are trying to answer right now. So, yeah. So having written this book, having spent this time in Alaska, having been all over the world researching these things, how are you living your life different? I, I was hoping maybe we could close with some ideas for people. We've kind of peppered them throughout the podcast, but what changes have you made in your life you know, you talked about these boredom walks, which I love. Um, what else are you doing differently now? What can we leave people with in terms of ways that they might introduce a little bit of intentional, uh, quote, medicinal discomfort back into their life? Yeah, I, well, I do, I try and do Masogi every year, like it. ever since. And that's been, I mean, that's definitely an enlightening thing. It's an awesome reset. And, you know, the the real takeaway from that is that, 50-50 chance. My 50% is going to be different than your 50% is going to be different than, you know, even my grandmother's 50%, whoever it is. It's really just finding, you know, what can I do outdoors that I know is going to challenge myself? For some people, that might be a mile long hike. If you've never hiked a mile before and you just haven't, you just never go out on trails, right? For other people, it's going to be like, I'm going to run a hundred miles. You know, it's kind of like do something that you think you could truly fail at and learn from that. So I try and do that. Um, those techless walks, I think, are really clutch, especially for coming up with ideas. You know, I think we, and this is important today because we really live in an idea economy, more or less. Um, I also, um, I've sort of, the book changed my view of how, we should exercise and how I exercise. So coming up through men's health, it was always very like gym centric. You're indoors, you're doing this stuff, you're doing this predetermined number of sets and reps. But when you look at like even how we approach exercise today, I mean, first of all, we made up exercise because <laughs> we needed to offset uh, sort of this uh, lack of movement we have in our days with our new environments. Um, but even our exercise is designed to be as comfortable as possible. It's like, it's in this air-conditioned gym. A lot of people will get on an elliptical, which is kind of this very bizarre movement um, for humans to make. And you know, our when we lift weights, if it's with a machine, it's like everything's perfectly padded. We predetermine our weight and our reps. And I think now I just try and get out and do uh, a lot more stuff in nature. Um, in the book, I talk about the importance of caring in human evolution. So we know that the human body is built the way it is, um, basically for two reasons. Uh, among others, there's, you know, we would run. We're really good at running long distances in the heat. We would use this to hunt. We'd persistence hunt, chase down prey over miles and miles. But then we'd have to carry it back to camp. And so I think that, you know, you see a lot of people who still jog, but how many people for a workout carry heavy stuff across rough ground? So I try and do that. And um, 
I met to learn more about that. I met with some researchers at Harvard and some special forces soldiers. Uh, and I do that through rucking a lot. So I will, I ruck quite often for my workout. I'll even, I live on the edge of the desert. So I try and spend just a lot of time outside and I'll even just do stuff. Like if I'm on a hike, I'll just be like, oh, there's a, there's a rock. It's maybe like 30, 40 pounds. Let's carry it for a mile. <laughs> like, and it's just this totally like thing that my, it's just a really interesting way to exercise. And I think it has some like pretty amazing benefits. Like my core strength, my back health has never been better. Like just, I don't know. It's, it's good. Um, I mean, I could go on and on, but yeah, those are some things I think are relatively approachable for people. You talk about kind of the hierarchy of nature exposure that I thought was cool. You know, some 20 minute walks in nature, some five hour exposures in nature, and then some three day exposures. I may have gotten those wrong if you want to clarify that, but I think that there is sort of this hierarchy. Like if you can get you know, multiple times a week, I think that we need to be 20 to 30 minutes in nature. And then maybe once a week or a few times a month, you take five to seven hours in nature. And then maybe a few times a year, you go into nature for much longer amounts of time, um, you know, days at a time into nature. I think that that makes sense. Like that's at least a starting ground for people in terms of nature exposure. But yeah, you, you, you mentioned this word in the book, you know, biophilia from E.O. Wilson. I thought it was great. Like I completely believe <laughs> that humans are connected with wilderness. And when we deny that wilderness, we become less human. And, and that's hard for us and leads to unhappiness. I've mentioned this in another podcast. There's a, a vegan physician, and I, I don't mean to throw him under the bus, but um, he's not always the nicest character uh, in New York. And I've had conversations with him. And uh, I, I feel for him a little bit because uh, he told me, he was like, I hate nature. I never go in nature. It's just a Holocaust everywhere. And I thought, my God, man, you misunderstand it so badly if you think nature is a holocaust. A lot of times in vegan circles, that narrative gets promoted. That troop is common. That that, mm -hmm. that death is bad, and that that you know nature is a holocaust. And so I'm just going to avoid nature and all of this this stuff. And I think, wow, yeah. like, and again, that that's to your point that the, a lot of times the people who are against meat eating are the people who are most removed from any sort of natural ecological cycle of actual predator yes. prey life death and um it just makes me sad to think that he's he's religiously quote unquote avoiding spending time in the wilderness i just can't think that that's good for him as a human yeah yeah i agree i mean there's um you know and quickly there's this idea of the nature pyramid and it basically states that you know humans need different doses of nature so three times a week 20 minutes in just the type of nature you can find in like a city park is really improves our focus, decreases stress levels, um, five hours a month in more sort of, you know, nature, like you'd find in a state park, a little bit wilder seems to make us a lot happier. It, uh, it's associated with reduced levels of depression, um, et cetera, et cetera. But I think what's most interesting is the top of the pyramid. There's this idea called the three day effect. And it basically shows that after three days in more backcountry nature, that's wilder. So long as we don't bring our cell phone on any of this, this seems to mess all that up. Um, our brains start to ride what are called alpha waves. And these are the waves that are seen in experienced meditators. And they're really associated with sort of a slowing down of time. And they make us, um, they're associated with a lot more creativity and just a feeling of like life satisfaction, like, ah, this is really nice, right? 
Um, and we don't get that in the modern world because we are, it's so go, go, go. And with all these different ideas we've talked about throughout this podcast, that once that third day hits, it's like sort of resets and we get back to this like really deep sense of gratitude and just feeling, feeling of well-being. that it's kind of one of those things where you have to actually do it to understand what it feels like. Right. It's like, I don't know. It's like name a drug. Well, what's that like? It's like, well, you have to probably do it. You know, it's like, you got to take that nature drug in order to, to understand it. You can't really describe nature in, in words as much. It's, it's, it's a, it's a collection of neurological signals in the brain and it's irreplaceable in my opinion. So, well, thank you so much for coming on, man. Thank you for writing this book. Thank you for the work you do. Where can people find more of your stuff if they want to connect with you, if they want to learn more about misogis and try and get on a misogi yeah. with you? Or like, I feel totally. like we should have a misogi group on Facebook. I know, man. Maybe that's maybe that's the next step. I like yeah. that. See, that's a good use of of uh, all the tech that we're yeah, seeing yeah, right? now, for sure. <laughs> I don't want it to become a comparison fest, but I think if people would enjoy seeing what other people have done. And yeah, I love that that has to have like a whimsical aspect of it. But where do people connect with you? Um, so the book is The Comfort Crisis, and it's available wherever. I got a website. It's Easter Michael. You can sign up for my newsletter and stuff like that there. Just find random articles and, and links. And then I'm most active on Instagram when it comes to social media. And that's Michael underscore Easter. All right, brother. I hope uh, that our paths cross in person at some point soon because we need to do a misogi together, brother. Oh, I'm down, man. Come you to Costa Rica. Let's do it. I'm <laughs> sure we good, can dude. find an 85-pound boulder or 50-pound boulder and walk it very far under the ocean in Costa Rica. Perfect. I love Let's it. Do it. Let's do it. <laughs>